And if you would, please take out your message outline, your sermon outline as well, your Bible, and turn with me to 1 John. This morning we return again to our great little study of 1 John, and I pray that the Lord will speak. If you don't have a sermon outline, these guys are coming forward to give one to you. Just lift your hand, and they'll be glad to give one to you. If you're tuning in online, I want you to know that you can go to our website and simply download the outline. It will help you greatly in understanding and studying our text. We've been studying this little letter of 1 John, so filled with great power and uh, glory. Uh, Last Wednesday night, we went back to it for a few moments um, in helping us get ready for this morning. We looked at victory over the world. That is our faith in God. That's from last Wednesday night, um, just a few nights ago. And this morning, we come to God's testimony of Jesus Christ, God's testimony of Jesus Christ, and we've entitled it Part One, because this morning something very interesting is going to happen. Um, This is the pre-sermon before the sermon, Um, so we could either stay till 2 p.m. today and get the whole thing, um, or we can just do Part One. Um, I think that your that your body will appreciate that a little bit, and uh, this will help us greatly to understand. God's Word in 1 John. I love to preach on who God really is and who Jesus is in being testified by God for His mission and His purpose for our salvation. I love to preach on this, and that is exactly what 1 John is about to help us really focus on. I love to see Jesus through the Scripture. Did you know that Jesus is in Genesis? Did you know that the Son of God is in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Did you know that Jesus is all through the Bible and that God's witness of Him long before He would ever come to be born in Bethlehem, that Jesus is with God? part full of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This great trinity is who we have come to worship. And this passage of Scripture helps us see that. Um, I want us to notice here in 1 John, notice, notice that we're in chapter 5. We're in chapter 5. If you have your Bible open, how many chapters are there in the little letter of 1 John? There's five. So uh, last Wednesday night was our first message in chapter five. And so here we are in the final chapter of First John, and we're going to take uh, a few messages over this passage. Wednesday night, we looked at verses one through five, and then this morning, we're going to be looking at six through 12, and really the precursor to that so that we can understand six through 12 better. But let's look, look and see verses one through five. Notice what it says there, and this is on the screen or in your Bible as you're looking on. First John chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So if you love God, you're going to love other Christians. If you love God, you're going to love those who've been born of Him. Look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, that's other Christians, when we love God and obey His commandments. And you see that's a lot of His commandments have to do with loving not only God, but loving other Christians. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Can you say amen? That's good news. His commandments are not burdensome. Some people just look at the call of God, the instructions of God, the commandments of God, and we think these are too burdensome for me. But in the Old Testament says these are not too burdensome for you. And in the New Testament says these are not too burdensome for you. God knows what He's doing. Look what it says. And His commandments are not burdensome. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So there's the power to obey. If you've been born of God, look at verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
And it's not faith in itself. We're going to see it's faith in God. Look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And we come to verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. So now he's starting to describe, and this is the testimony of God. We're going we're to look at this in detail even in the next message, but let's, let's go ahead and start to let this text sink into our mind. It's, it's very beautiful and it's very powerful. Look what it says in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Verse 7. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. And if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has been that he has born concerning his son verse 10 whoever believes in the son of god has the testimony in himself whoever does not believe god has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that god has born or that god has given concerning his son. So I want you to see at the end of verse 10, it's talking about the fact that God bears testimony or has borne testimony, has given testimony about who Jesus is, his son. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Verse 12, let's read it out loud together. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Could not be more clear. Verse 12. So this morning, we want to set it. We want to to remember what verses 1 through 5 at the top said to us Wednesday, and, and if you missed that, I want to encourage you to go back and look at it, and if, and if you missed that, I want to encourage you to start considering coming on Wednesday nights where we, where we just study the Word, whether it's part of our Sunday series or other series that we do. It's a rich time, but we, we want to see what God is doing here in this text. You know, we talk about John writing it. John does write it, but John only writes, as any, any Old Testament or New Testament author writes, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So this is God's word to us through John, and we see this. Let's, let's review from Wednesday. There's, there's three main points here. I want you to see this. From Wednesday, this is what we saw. That, again, that John writes to clarify and affirm true faith in Jesus as essential to salvation. So all through this letter, all through this letter, he is clarifying salvation and he's affirming it for us. And he's affirming those who believe in Jesus. Look at this on your outline. In every chapter, he presents important tests. Can you underline that? Important tests by which the reader can evaluate. And they're going to evaluate two things. They're going to evaluate their own faith. Fill that in. We need to evaluate our own faith. John is concerned that people truly look at their own faith and see whether or not they are in the truth. And letter B, the faith claims of others. Because there's many people who claim faith in Jesus, and John is helping us see how you can, you can look at that and, and recognize that some who claim Christ really do know Christ, and their life shows it, and some who claim Christ clearly do not. And the reason he wants us to be able to do that is because some will come in and deceive the church. That was a problem 2,000 years ago when he wrote this letter, and it is a problem today. We can see that your own faith can be validated, and you are able to, under the, under the grace and, and truth of God, to not be deceived by some people who claim to know God but do not. Notice the next section here. See the tests. We talked about these tests of salvation for yourself. Number one is the test of belief in Jesus as Messiah. Do you believe? Notice and remember with me that John's gospel was centered on belief and this little letter, the first John letter, is centered on belief in Jesus 
as Messiah. Number two, the test of love for the saints. The test of love for the saints. Now, the saints are not those statues around St. Peter's Square in Rome. The saints are not um, a painting on a wall in a Catholic church. When the Bible is talking about the saints, it's talking about anyone who has come and been cleansed by Jesus. That means that saint means holy. Sante has to do with holiness, the, the Holy Spirit, the, the um, beauty and the holiness of God is in this. Well, God gives to us His holiness to, to those who are truly in Christ. He now sees us as clean and washed. And so the saints are the brothers and the sisters who share genuine saving faith in Jesus. So if you have a love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, those who, as the text says, have been born of him or are called the children of God, then that is evidence that you know God. Now, if you have no love for the church, if you have no interest in the church, if you, if you, if you can't come and forgive one another, love one another, bear one another, serve one another, care for one another, then this text, and this is part of what John is hammering on, not only for the people of his day, but for 2,000 years of church history, he is letting us see, if you have no love for the church, you do not know God. And he says it over and over and over again in this little letter. Notice number three, the test of love for God. Um, there, there is the test of love for God. Do you love God? We see this in verse 2. By this we come to know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. So this is about loving God. And number four, this is about obeying God, the test of obedience. Do you do what Jesus said to do? Do you follow Him? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will do what I say. There's some people that say, well, I like to go to church. It makes me feel good. But, you know, when it comes down to it, I'm really going to live my life the way I want to live my life. My morality is going to be what I want to do. My morality is not going to ultimately be affected by what God has said is right or wrong. I'm going to watch what I want to watch. I'm going to be with who I want to be with in the way that I want to be with them. And it doesn't really matter what God's Word says. That's what I'm going to do. But I do like going to church and feeling better about myself. Now, the Bible is saying, if that is your attitude, you don't know God. Notice here with me that there's a beautiful affirmation for those who do know God. And we see this in the verses 1 through 5. It's the affirmation that's given that, tr- the affirmation is given that true believers are overcomers. And they're overcomers. This is not just in their own strength, but far more we see the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what causes us to overcome the sinfulness of the world. And we looked at Wednesday night that the verb form is nikeo, which means overcomer. Nikeo overcomer. That's a Greek word. And in fact, think Nike. Fill that in. Nike. That's where the word Nike comes from. The goddess of what? Victory. There you see it. It's the same idea. And we, and we saw Wednesday night that, that the world around them in John's day, the only people who would be truly victorious are the gods. And not, not the people. The only ones who could truly be victorious were the gods. And, you, and we, would see, we would see Nike with Apollos and Zeus, and that they would be, they would be the only ones who would be victor, victorious. But here, John is blowing the lid off that and saying, are you kidding me? We are overcomers. We are the ones who are victorious over this world in Jesus Christ, the one true God. Not through the mythology of the Greeks or the mythology of the Romans, you see, there's a, there's a powerful statement in here that the real victory over sin, the real victory over the hardness of the world, the real victory over the pain and the sorrow and the sickness and the death of the world is found in Jesus Christ. That is, what overcomes the world is faith. So notice here with me, the ultimate victory is not found in faith itself, but faith in God. And that's where John is going for through all of these verses. 
that it's through faith in God. By faith, we are loosed, transformed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. No longer does sin hold us in bondage. We are loosed from that. You don't have to live in, in sin. You don't have to live in the life of sin. Jesus died so that you can overcome your profanity problem. He died so that you can overcome your hatred problem. He died so, he can, so that he can overcome, that you can overcome all of the things that are hold you in bondage, the vice sins of your life, and he transforms us and empowers us by his spirit. And there's several passages there. We looked at them Wednesday night. They are the pictures of what true overcoming and true victory is all found in Jesus. Now, that is the backdrop for verses 6 through 12. So it's all pointing again to those tests of trusting in Jesus and seeing that he is the victorious one. And then we come, verses 6 through 12, to this beautiful testimony. And at first it can be confusing. What is he talking about here with water and blood and spirit? What is this? These three agree, it says in verse 8, what does this mean? That's what we're going to dive into. But what we see down in verse 11 and 12 helps us see what this is all about. Remember with me verse 11. Look what it says in verse 11. And this is the what? This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So God is making testimony. God is serving as a witness. Listen to this. God is presenting to you a case about himself. God wants you to know him. He wants you to know who he really is in all of his glory. He wants you to know who he is in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He wants you to know his grand plan. God is presenting to you a case for who he is. Now, John is just the one who would write it down under his inspiration, but I want you to see something very, very exciting this morning as we do look at this. Notice this. The correct view, fill this in, that a correct view of who Jesus is is essential to salvation. Fill that in. A correct view of who Jesus is is essential to salvation. Now, do you have your Bible open to 1 John? I want you to notice here with me. Look in 1 John. Go back over there almost to the Revelation. If you're in the Gospel of John, you're in the wrong place. It needs to have a 1 in front of John. On my, in my Bible, it's uh, 1,021. Um, yours Bible is probably different. But notice here with me, at the end there, I want you to notice this list of verses that are out here. This is talking about who Jesus is is essential to our salvation. Look at verses 1 through 4. Look what it says. This, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We just sang that. The life was made visible, is the idea, in verse 2. And we have seen it and testify it to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from where? Which was from the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So that is the beginning of the little letter, and the little letter is all about what we have seen, who we have seen, what he has done, and where he came from, and the fact that the Father is bearing witness of that. And the reason this is such a big deal is if you get it wrong on who Jesus is, you cannot be saved, because salvation only comes through him. And salvation only comes through faith in him. And so if we just believe that Jesus is a good moral teacher, but he's not really from God, he's not really God himself, if we we just believe that Jesus is a miracle worker, if we just believe that, that Jesus is an ethicist or a moralist, 
If we just believe that the value of Jesus was setting a great example to us, but we do not recognize that he indeed was the sacrifice who would take the sins of the world upon himself, and that this was God taking the sins of the world upon God so that all who trust in him can be saved. If we don't see that, we cannot be saved because we are looking to something else for salvation. And so John is saying, you must understand who Jesus is. This is essential to salvation. We can look at um, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22. So go to the next chapter, over to chapter 2 and verse 22. Look what it says. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? In verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son, because you're denying God's witness of him. Look over in chapter 3 and verse 23. Look down at chapter 3 and verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. We must believe in who he is. And what does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus? To understand that the name Jesus, Yeshua, literally means what? We just, starting point people, what does the name Jesus literally mean? Very good. God saves. And so we, we come to see that, no, this is all about clearly understanding the fact that salvation comes from God. You know, I know people who grew up in Bible teaching churches, gospel teaching churches, and somehow through their neglect, I believe, of spiritual disciplines, that means not being in the Word, not having time with God, not continuing in worship, not continuing to worship God decade in and decade out. At other points in their life, they they allow the thinking of the world to fade and to dim the great glory of who Jesus Christ really is. They get busy with life. Maybe they go through a divorce or they go through some great hardship. They move to another city or another country. They, they go through, maybe, maybe it's prosperity. Maybe suddenly they, they really do well and, and a lot of their needs are met and life becomes about enjoying life and the pleasure of things, or whether it's that or it's great hardship or illness, whatever it is, somehow they get out of being in the Word, they get out of regular worship, and they go on through life. And as time goes on, they become more and more focused on what is before them and the problems or the blessings and the pleasures before them, either one, and they begin to forget, and the glory of Christ fades. You need to be on guard for that. Satan has a myriad of ways in in which he wants the glory of Christ to fade in your life. Oh, yeah, pastor, I used to be all in that. I used to memorize a lot of scripture. I, you know, I, was, I did the Sunday school thing, man. I, did the, I worked with middle schoolers, man. I mean, come on. Well, I worked in the, in the nursery. You know, I, I, did, I went on mission trips. I went to Africa, pastor. You know, all of those things cannot counteract a lack of spiritual disciplines to stay before God. The world will tarnish and fade the glory of Christ if you do not stay near to God. Satan is crafty. He's been studying humans for thousands of years. He knows human nature. He knows different personality types. He has little series of of things, the buttons he can push. And I, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll know how much, you know, all of the behind the scenes stuff was going on. But I know that he is real. And I know that the scripture refers to his deception in believers' lives as well as unbelievers' lives. And I know that some people's faith, excuse me, suffers shipwreck. It's hard to say those. Suffers shipwreck. 
because they get away from staying in the Word and seeing who Jesus is and worshiping the glory of Christ. You see, the key verse of this entire letter is not even in the box on the page. It's the very next verse that is going to come. It's at the bottom of the page. The key verse of the entire letter that we've been studying is found in 1 John chapter 5, and it's verse 13. And in fact, it's one of my favorite verses. This is in my top 10 verses of the entire Bible. Look what it says. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You believe that salvation is in Jesus. They believe in the name of the Son of God. And look what it says, that you may know that you have eternal life. Can you circle the word know? That's the operative word here. That if you believe in Jesus, you don't turn the sheet over. Look at this. If you believe in Jesus, God wants you to know. You see, a good father wants his children to know that they are loved. A good father wants his children to know that they are safe. Only a foolish father would want his children to remain vulnerable and terrified. A foolish, manipulative, horrible father would want his children to feel threatened. A good and righteous father wants his children to know that they are safe. And this is the beauty of our Heavenly Father. Look what it says. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And he wants you to stay in that knowing, to stay in that assurance, to enjoy that forever. Well, how does God cause all of this to come? Well, God testifies to who Jesus is, and that's very important because Jesus is your only hope of salvation and security and joy and hope. Turn the page over. I want us to see this, and I think that this morning it's possible that some of you have heard this concept that we're about to look at right now in these passages, but you've never seen it before, and the reason I've gone ahead and in, in Uh, included these passages actually on the page is because I want your optical receptors, I want your eyeballs to see these. And I want you to see them. I want it to register in your brain that this really is what God is doing throughout the Bible. Um, Throughout the Bible, we see God's, notice the top there, God's testimony or his witness of who Jesus is throughout the Bible. You see, fill it in. Jesus is the focal point of fill it in redemptive history. Jesus is where that focuses. It's not just a, a, a nebulous God. It's not just a nebulous concept of mercy or grace. It is all found in a person. The focal point of redemptive history is found in Jesus Christ. This is God's plan of redemption. And notice this, the next one, the Father repeatedly testifies that Jesus is Messiah, He is Savior, He is Redeemer, that means He's going to go pay the price to buy back, He's going to redeem it, and He is King. That's what he is. And, you know, the word, I was thinking about this as I was praying for you, um, even last night, and, and thinking about this concept and this point right here. I thought the word king is kind of a big word and, and so forth. But in America today, we kind of usually have not so favorable a view of the word king. I mean, we think, well, we're democracy, we're not a monarchy. I mean, the king in England and the queen in England, you know, that's just really. Um, symbolic, not a lot of power there to rule or to reign. And a lot of the kings that we know of in the world today have been just really full-on malicious dictators. We don't have a very high view of king. But the picture here, when we start to see the word king in reference to the Son of God, what we want to do is raise up our eyes to an eternal king. We want to raise up our gaze, not to an earthly king, that you know, may or may not be good and is going to have a limited life and is going to have a limited power, really, as powerful as they may think that they are. None of them really are. But when we start looking at this, right out there to the side of king, ultimate authority. 
ultimate authority over everything. Not just over people and controlling people, but this is ultimate authority over physics. This is ultimate authority over biology. This is ultimate authority, listen to this, over time. This is ultimate authority over every philosophy that there has ever been. This is the king of all things. And so don't let our little earthly view of kings slow us down when it comes to raising up our eyes to see the kingship of the second person of the Trinity. Well, the Father is repeatedly testifying to this kingship in Jesus. And it even starts in Genesis 1, we see the presence of the Trinity there. But notice here in Genesis 3, what happens in Genesis 1 and 2? Help me out. Everybody kind of look up here for just a minute. What happens in Genesis 1 and 2? Eduardo, say it real loud. Creation. What happens in Genesis 3? So very quickly we get to the disaster. In the word fall, we should really sometimes substitute the word rebellion. So it's not just that we, oh, we tripped and fell. No, we rebel. So let's be clear about this issue of sin. It's not, it's not just an accident. It's a willful defiance to the creator of the universe. And so this fall comes, and there's a curse that comes behind this. God in his majesty, in his holiness, in his goodness, listen to this, in his justice, is going to bring a curse. But he's not only going to bring a curse, but eventually, of course, he's going to bring a salvation from that curse. So the, the Bible is about creation, fall, and redemption. And so notice here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, and notice what I've done here over the next few texts, there's a statement out there to the side to help you understand it. And then I want you to see the actual text where we're starting to see God's testimony of who Jesus is. And from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, notice what it says, at the fall, God curses Satan, but Jesus is the ray of hope foretold to come. Where do we see that? Look what he says. As God the Father is speaking to Satan there in the garden, he says, I will put enmity or hatred between you, you and the woman and bring your offspring, and, and, excuse me, and between your offspring and her offspring. So he is going to have an influence of this, but she is going to have an influence of this, her offspring, and this offspring shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we see that there is a ray of hope that this one who is deceived and provoked a rebellion is going to be crushed. And he's going to be crushed by the seed of the woman. That would be the Lord Jesus Christ, eventually born in Bethlehem, that would go and go to the cross in obedience to the Father, fulfilling the law, overcoming sin and death through his resurrection, and bruise and vanquish the evil one. So he may tempt and he may deceive for a while. He may torment for a period, but we see the full testimony of Scripture is that he will eventually be cast into hell, the lid will be closed, and that will be the end. And it will all be because of the second person of the Trinity, Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. God will send his son to rule as worthy and triumphant king. You know, a big question about kings is, is he the rightful king? Is he the worthy king? You know, that's why they study bloodlines. That's why they, they look at all this. And somebody could come along and usurp the king. Somebody that's not part of the, the lineage, the, the line that is supposed to rule and reign over that could come along and could take that. But what we see in the Bible is, is that God is saying, oh no, I have a lineage of my king that I am sending. 
And so notice this in, jo- in Genesis 49 and verse 10. Notice the scripture. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a reference. And then you go over to Revelation chapter 5 and you see again this picture of this reigning king forever. So in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, God uses the false, listen to this, this is great. God uses the false prophet, Balaam, to reveal a messianic prophecy. You see, God can, he can accomplish anything he wants. He is in charge of even the, the false prophets that would encourage worship of false gods And notice what this false prophet Balaam says in Numbers 24 and verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, underline it, will come. A star will come out of Jacob. You see, that's the proper line. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the people of Sheth. These are the God-haters. That Jesus is going to be the victorious vanquisher of all God's enemies. Those who reject God in his goodness and his plan. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2 in verse 10. Hannah's, Hannah would be the mother of Samuel. And here she had been barren, and she prayed that the Lord would give her a son. Lord, give me a son that I would not be part of the oppressed, and that I would not be that which would be downtrodden. And then the Lord, in his miraculous might, comes and causes Hannah to be with child. She gives birth to a son that she is committed to the Lord's work. And then she sings a beautiful song. And in her song of joy, notice what she says in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give, underline it, he will give strength to circle it, his king. And exalt the horn of his what? His anointed Well, this is one of those rays of of light that is coming to see that the strength of the king is going to come from the Father, and the strength of the king is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this referred to in the New Testament as well. Verifying that's what this is talking about. Look at 2 Timothy or 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 15. God promises David a son greater than Solomon. So remember with me, David has Solomon, and we see that Solomon becomes one of the greatest kings and one of the greatest, most wealthy and wise persons of all the world, in the history of the world. We we see that his, his reign and his dominion is without rival. And then notice this, though, that God promises David a son greater than Solomon, who will reign what? eternally. Look in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your, with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who, will, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Here it is. Circle it. Forever. Now, there's no king that lead, that, 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 reigns and leads forever other than the eternal king of Jesus. And we see that, again, this is, this is pointed to in a, in a veiled way that later is unveiled, that we see throughout the Scripture. And by the way, there are many, many texts like this throughout the Bible that keep pointing to God's witness of a coming king, a coming Messiah king. I mean, how many, how many kings do you know that come and lay down their life? I mean, most kings protect their life. Here's a king who's a Messiah king. He's a king who comes and lays down his life for his people. You see, God's way of doing things is, is totally opposite of the world's way. And then in Psalm chapter 2, um, or Psalm 2, it's the, it's the entire song of Psalm, uh, when we look at this, 
This is one of the most beautiful psalms. Just put a big circle around just that Psalm 2 part there. I want you to note that Psalm 1 is beautiful, the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. But Psalm 2, right there at the beginning of the hymn book of the Bible, we see this glorious psalm that is all pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. So look what it says after Psalm 2 there. God declares the great judgment and hope of the coming Messiah King. And boy, I wish we had time to read the whole psalm. You ought to do that this afternoon. There's several places where it refers to the Lord Jesus um, uh, most pointedly. That's very obvious. But notice in verse 2, the kings of the earth will set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against who? His anointed That's what Christ means, anointed one. So this is against the Lord and his anointed. This is the Messiah. The world is going to fight against the Messiah. Look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. This is God speaking. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, this is a king who owns everything. This is a king whose domain has no end. He is ruling over all of the earth. Psalm 2 is talking about a coming Messiah king. And then in verse 12, it's even called the Son. Here it is, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. That means come and submit to the Son. The idea of a king um, is that if you were there, you've, you've heard this before, you've seen this before in different movies, different ideas, that the king would have a ring of authority. And this is where you see people coming and kissing the ring of the Pope as a king, as a reigning king, really. But, that's it. but that would happen throughout antiquity, that there would be a ring of authority, and people would come before the king, and they would bow down, and they would pay homage. They would bow down and kiss the ring of the pope, or kiss the son. Is that not what even the ultimate betrayal of Judah, Judas, Judas was about before Jesus? That he would come to kiss him, to, to formally show a surrender to him and perhaps an affection. It, was really, it wasn't about affection and, and being nice warm fuzzies as it was recognizing the authority. And that's what Judas was doing when he was identifying Jesus to the people that were there to arrest him. So what a betrayal, what a picture, what a spiritual message of how we will betray, how we will reject, but yet in God's grand plan. Look what verse 12 says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, underline this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it's not only about his great power and judgment, but it's also about his hope in those who take refuge in him. And as we read on the other side of the page where I said it doesn't get any clearer than that, there is the stark difference between those who will recognize him as Lord and those who will not. There will will be those who are saved and those who are not. Now, notice this in another gear, so we, we shift gears for just a little bit here. We've been looking at a few passages. There's many in the Old Testament that point to this Messiah King. But look with me in these. This is most exciting and most beautiful. I want you to see this. The extensive prophecies regarding the precise details of Jesus' birth. Many of you have kind of seen those in the past. But also his life, fill that in, his life, and also his death. So God, I want you to see this, that God is testifying through the prophets and through the scriptures, through the Psalms, of who Jesus is. And we see this in Isaiah 7, 14. He's going to be born of a virgin. In Micah 5, 2, we see even the town where he's going to be born. It is in Bethlehem. 
We often read those around Christmas time. In Hosea chapter 11, he, we see that the Messiah King is going to be called out of Egypt. Well, remember with me, because of Herod, he, and, and really the very next one, Jeremiah 31, 15, an attempt to kill him as a child. That this Messiah reigning king is going to be attempted to be killed. Well, we see that exactly with Herod trying to find this king who had been born. And so Joseph and Mary pack up Jesus and they flee to Egypt. And then they're called back out of Egypt to come back to God's people. And so that's where we see called in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 and Jeremiah 31. How about this? Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 shows a forerunner before him. And that would be John the Baptist. And it's prophesied there will be a forerunner, one of great, one who is unique and one who is teaching and preaching the truth of God that will go before him saying, prepare a way in the wilderness. And that's the wilderness of our sin. Notice Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. It, it shows that this, this Messiah is going to have a ministry in the area of Galilee, which is an area of what we call the Holy Land, but it's to the north. He's going to have a ministry there. In fact, we just studied that up in that area of Nazareth a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 41 and verse 9. He's betrayed by a close friend. We just talked about that. There it is in Psalm 41 and verse 9. In Psalm 22, put a circle around this one, Psalm 22, details of his crucifixion. You can go all through Psalm 22 and start seeing all of the details of what is prophesied a thousand years before Jesus would be crucified, how it is going to happen is, 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 is amazingly detailed in Psalm 22. In Isaiah 53, 750 years before Jesus would even be born, much less die, we see the significance of his death. We see in Isaiah 53 that he is going to be the one who comes and lifts the curse of sin and death. He is going to be the one that brings healing. He is the one that, that is going to come and bring hope. And then in Psalm 16, we see that there's the, the foretelling that he is going to be resurrected, his coming resurrection. And so I want you to see that the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together like lock and key, and these are just a few of the passages that very clearly show us that God in his word is testifying to who Jesus is. And you know, it was the wise men. I, I love the idea that as we study at Christmas time um, so often, the wise men said, we've, we've read in the scriptures, in the writings, the foretelling of his coming, and we've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. You see, they were looking. Number one, they knew what the word said in order to what to look for. And number two, when it said it and they saw it, they came. May we be wise. I pray that you're wise. That when you hear God's word telling you the Messiah has come, when you hear God's word telling you who he is and what he has for you, that you would be like the moth drawn to the flame of the Lord Jesus. And that your life would begin to reflect that. You see, that's what a wise man does. That's what one who... Um, is, is seeking the truth. Now, perhaps my favorite example of all of this comes from Jesus himself, and I want you to see this. See Jesus' own explanation of himself. This is his explanation of himself, and when does he do it? But on the evening of Resurrection Sunday. So this is right at the end of his life as he, is, um, he has died for our sins, he was laid in the tomb, and on Resurrection Sunday, they go to the tomb, and the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there, but Jesus starts popping up in some places, and it gets really, it gets really interesting, very different. We're starting to see that he's, he's not binding himself to space and time like he was for three years. We start to see that he's appearing here. He's walking through this wall or this door, and he's, I mean, he, he's, he's revealing himself in his resurrected glory in a different way for a few days before he ascends to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit. So that's the timeline of how this goes. So this is the evening of Resurrection Sunday. 
This is the evening of the first day of his resurrection. And he shows up and he's walking on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus, leaving Jerusalem with a couple of guys. A couple of guys that have been around Jesus a lot. And they were discussing everything that had just happened. The fact that, my goodness, at Passover, Jesus was crucified. And what are we to do? He was laid in a tomb. What are we to think? You know, you can imagine how those men that were looking and studying, is this the Messiah? Is he not? Who is this? I mean, they're walking along, and Jesus shows up with them, and he walks with them. And notice what happens in verse 24. After he's been with them quite a long time, in verse 24, he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You see, that's God's word of the Old Testament. Remember, we've just been looking at that. All that the prophets have spoken. We just looked at a bunch of those. Remember? Believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27. And then look what he does. And beginning with Moses, that means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. And beginning with all the way back at the beginning, and beginning with Moses, and then what? All the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's an amazing statement. How I wish I had been there to hear that. I would have loved to hear the things that he thought were most important to point out from the Old Testament about himself. And so Jesus is is saying this. We skip down to verse 44. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what does it say? Must be fulfilled. And so, I mean, he was saying, I told you all all these things, but these things must be fulfilled. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds. Can you underline that? Then he opened their minds to understand. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. Here's the crux of it all. That the, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, verse 47, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. I know you're tempted to turn over the page. Don't do it yet. Notice this. Look at this. This text down here at the bottom is Jesus saying everything that's in, the, that's in the sheet above you. It's showing the Old Testament. Jesus is verifying, I fulfilled all that the Scriptures said of me. And why did I do it all? For your salvation, so you can be saved, so that you can have victory in the world, so that the world's curse and bondage of sin does not run your life. You don't have to be addicted to pornography. You don't have to be addicted to drugs. You don't have to be addicted to your pride. You don't have to be scared that you're not going to have enough of this world's stuff to make it all the way through. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in shame of the past. What he's saying is, you can come live in me. I will save you both here and I will save you there at your death and I will save you unto eternity. That's the reason that I've come. And you say amen. So may we see what John is getting at for us. He's talking about the testimony of God as to who Jesus is and why he has done what he has done and that we would have confidence in nothing else except him. That's the proper worship. That's what it means to really see. It's that whole picture of what we've just sung last week with nothing in my hand I bring but only to the cross I cling. The cross is my only hope. 
The fact that the second person of the Trinity would leave the halls of heaven and come and lay down his life and say, this is what love looks like. He lays down his life and he, he humbles himself unto death, even death on a cross. And that because of that, the Father has highly exalted him making his name above every name, that there's no other king that comes remotely close. There's no other wisdom that comes remotely close. There's no other compassion that comes remotely close. There's no other power that comes remotely close to this Jesus. And so, church family, may we see that this is, this is what God wants us to see and believe and live our lives for. That this one who all of antiquity, all of the history of the world was pointing to a Messiah. This isn't a bunch of old folks getting together and just saying, well, let's write down some things. Let's put it together in a book and send it off down through um, posterity and you know, maybe somebody will get something out of it. That's what Harvard University and Tulane and all of these other places would love for you to believe, that the Bible's just a mismatch of you know, wise sayings from people that were surrounded around one particular ethnicity and that was obsessed with themselves. And I mean, they have very low view of the beauty and the majesty of God's eternal word that we may know who he is and believe it, follow it, and live it all the way to our grave. May we reject the world's rejection of God. May we accept and live for with everything we have the great glory of Christ. May we not just stand here and sing it today, but when we get in our car and we go home, that we're living it. That as we, as we live with our husband, as we live with our wife, as we live with our children, as we serve in our places of work and we live in our homes, that we would be God's people. That the tests of 1 John would be true of us. Oh, the glory it is worthy. He is worthy of this. Notice here with me, and I'm going to make this very fast on the last page. Notice this. Remember John's reasons for writing his gospel account. Underline that, his gospel account. And this letter, circle that, this letter. He wrote the gospel of John, but he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're studying 1st John. He, why did he do this? Well, let's remember. The gospel, John wrote his gospel so that you can believe in Jesus as the Christ and be saved. That's why he wrote it. Everything he wrote is trying to show you that Jesus really was the Messiah, that he really was the anointed one that we were waiting on. That's why John wrote it, and he wrote it very carefully. We studied a few years ago. We spent three years studying that beautiful book, but notice with me John 20 and verse 31, and this is the reason. He tells us the reason he wrote the gospel of John. Let's read it out loud together. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, it's important, you must know, it's essential for you to know that Jesus is the Christ, that's the anointed one, the Son of God, and that by believing you are saved, that you have life in his name. Now, John shows us that. Look at that. If you read through the Gospel of John, you see it by the, the, this is God giving witness to Jesus as both deity, that means God, and Messiah, the one who would rescue the first one is Scripture. We see that Jesus is quoting the Scriptures regarding himself. And, and John is pointing out that the Scripture is pointing to this Jesus. John the Baptist, we already talked about that, that John the Baptist was the forerunner. John is showing us that John the Baptist would come. What about the disciples? We see that the disciples are the evidence that Christ is who he said he was. Christ's own words, his own words that G, what Jesus would teach and preach about himself is showing us the witness that he is the Messiah. And then a biggie is Christ's works. That's his miracles. That's his wonders. That's he's saying, he's saying, look, see this? Nobody else can do this. I can do this. And he tells a lame man to walk. He tells a, a dead man to rise. He tells a woman who, who is or, uh, by the mere touch of his garment. 
He, a woman is healed from something that no doctor could ever heal her from. Those are the stories that John is telling us very clearly, showing us by his works, this is not an ordinary man. And then it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we see the Father himself over and over again. Here's just two of them. There's several others where the Father himself is testifying. John wants you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John wants you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah because he knows that if you believe that, you can be saved. Now, look at the next one. So why did he write 1 John? In 1 John, he's writing it so that you can believe in Jesus, and I love this, and you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. And put up there above it or below it, because God is so good. God wants you to know that. He doesn't want you to wonder. There's so many Christians that struggle with that, and they're, they're saying, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't really know if I, if I have. Listen, God wants you to know. He wants you to know that you know that you know that you are his. And if you don't know that, it may mean that somehow you've never truly come to faith in Jesus. We want to help you work through that. That's part of what Starting Point was all about this morning. That's why we love to grow together. Our church, as part of the importance of church membership, is that the members of the church can help you work through that. We can help one another. And we come to a place of kind of affirming one another or saying, I don't think you understand, and let's work through this. This is, he wants us to know. And so we study. Look with me at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. We just said it. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants you to understand, fill it in, that God is testifying to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He wants you to know that God is testifying to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and all who believe in him can have assurance, can have assurance, not insurance, assurance, can have assurance of eternal life. You can be assured that God has saved you and he saved you forever. That's why he's writing these things. That's why he wants you to look at your life. That's why he wants you to look at the tests of your heart. That's why he wants you to understand the testimony of who Jesus is. And that is why he blasts into verses 6 through 12 at the end, which we're going to study in an expository way um, at the end, uh, excuse me, the next time that we meet for studying 1 John. Eight times he uses the word testify. Now, look up there at the box on the top of the page. Look what I've done. I've made bold these words of testimony. Do you think this is important to John? Yes, it's very important to John. He's saying, I want you to know that God has testified and the world has testified, the Scripture has testified, to that if you're trusting in Jesus, you're trusting in the right thing. And so the beauty of this is, and notice this, in part two, we will see the powerful culmination of God's, underline it, perfectly complete testimony of who Jesus Christ is and the massive implications of that reality in your life and your future. You see, the reality is this, fill it in, the reality of Jesus' true identity is huge. That's why we've just been looking through the whole Bible that is uh, revealing who his identity is. And not only is it big, immense, but it's also dangerous. This king is dangerous. This king will ultimately and perfectly judge his enemies. This king is dangerous, but not only is this king dangerous, this king is glorious. He is a glorious king. He is a glorious king, and part of his glory is his grace, and that is the purpose for which he's come, is that we may know him. Application and meditation. I think that this is one of those sermons that you need to go talk to somebody about. I think that this is one of those sermons that maybe at lunch, 
or maybe at dinner, or maybe before bedtime, or maybe with some guys or some gals or whatever, I, I think you need to talk about this sermon. Number one, has anyone ever shown you the testimony of Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures before? Has, have you ever seen that? Did you know that? Did you know that the Old Testament testifies so beautifully, so artistically, so mysteriously to Christ? How does seeing it affect you? What impact does it have on your understanding of Jesus? It should affect your understanding of Jesus. Number two, does this reveal anything to you about God's grand plan to save us? Does it, does it help you understand his big picture plan anymore to see that Christ is so vividly portrayed in the Old Testament? If so, what is it? What do you learn about God's grand plan? Number three, and this is perhaps the most important one, how does or should this message impact your life today? If you think about the wonder and the glory of this grand plan of God in who Jesus is, how does it impact your life today? How about tomorrow? How about this week? <laughs> how should this impact your life forever? Because God talks in terms of forever a lot. Let's stand for prayer. Want everybody to stand up and settle down. Please, please don't go home right now. Please don't leave. Stay right here. We're going to sing a beautiful hymn that will help water this in. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that these glorious words that we have looked at today in your eternal words would find their mark in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would see who you are and see that you deserve, Lord, our trust. Lord, some of us have been afraid of things in our lives. Lord, some of us have been convicted that we're being selfish about things in our time or our family or our entertainment or other things. We're sometimes afraid of what you're going to take away from us if we really trust in you. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would see what we need more than anything else is just see you for who you are. The king from eternity past that would leave the halls of heaven to come and rescue us and lay down his life that we might live. Lord, I pray that the message of your word this morning would overwhelm our worldliness. I pray that it would overwhelm our sinfulness. That your grace seen here would make us just want to obey in everything. There would be nothing that we would not put on the altar. There'd be no fear that we would hold on to, that we would just say, that's it. I'm going to trust God with this. I'm going to give this to God. If he would plan through the ages to come save me, he can take care of this problem. He can heal this hurt. If he can plan to raise me from the dead for eternity, he can heal my heart. Lord, may we be a people who say, Lord, take this world, but just give me Jesus above everything else. Father, I pray that you would help us to do that. In the 
wonderful and blessed name of your Son. Amen.